When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Country Roll, a special Let It Roll maxi-series discussing Ken Burns' country music documentary hosted by Nate Wilcox and James Porter. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Nate uses AKG microphones and headphones. Today, Nate and James kick off the series with a discussion of The Rub, the first episode of the series discussing the musical sources of country music as well as featuring Jimmy Rogers and the Carter family. There's also a little meta discussion about the series, our thoughts on Ken Burns, and more. Email us at letitrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and I'm joined by James Porter, and we're embarking on a series in which we're going to discuss Ken Burns' country music series, aiming to get it done in eight episodes, but it might go longer. We will see. James, welcome to the show. Hey, how's it going? Going good. Thanks for joining us. Tell the people a little bit about um, your background as a music writer, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Uh, I've pretty much done it all. I mean, I've been a DJ, a music writer, and a musician, uh, pretty much a uh, triangulated through all three of those worlds. Um, as, a, as a writer, uh, I have written for several publications going back to the 90s. Um, I'm, I'm based in Chicago, and I've written for like the Chicago Reader, um, uh, Rocktober, Downbeat, Living Blues, a uh, whole bunch of different magazines. Um, I was on the staff Time Out Chicago, and I, I'm working on a book, which I hope to, which I hope to probably see print maybe next year. It's about, uh, it's about uh, black rock musicians. And it's awesome. called Wild and Street. Yes. Awesome. Well, we'll look forward to that and plan on having you back to discuss it when it's out. So, Ken Burns, country music. Yeah. It's a it's a big that was topic. A highly debated topic a couple years ago. Indeed, it was indeed. A great when, yes, it was a great series. It comes with a lot of weight, not only the history of country music, but Ken Burns has been making documentaries for at least thirty something years. Like he's been a PBS's main guy documentary wise so there's a lot of expectations here you know his civil rights documentary was epic at the time maybe hasn't aged so well now from our perspective the jazz series made me personally livid about two thirds of the way through it or a third of the way oh, through God. it 
<laughs> like the just the we're gonna pretend free jazz and fusion never happened business. Um, I, I gotta be honest with you, man. A lot of people didn't want to see the country documentary for the same reason. You know, they, they, oh, they, yeah. they felt that the jazz they felt that the jazz documentary barely skimmed the surface of a deep well and they kind of figured that the country would be worse. But having never seen the jazz series, I mean, I was quite surprised by what I did see on, on the country series, you know? There's always going to be somebody they left, they left out. And somebody's always going to be like, you know, oh, wait a minute, he forgot to include this one guy who had 145 on a truck stop jukebox back in 1962. You exactly. know, but, um, you know, but in general, he did a great job with what he had, you know? Yeah, I, I was definitely very pleased with it. I think that the secret sauce is, you know, Burns tends to always have at least one author that he, that's his lodestar. And in this one, it's Bill C. Malone, author of Country Music USA, which was the first single volume history of country music came out in the 60s, originally a PhD thesis. Pretty definitive. Right. He has his biases, but they're nowhere near Wenton Marsalis and Stanley Crouch's biases in the Jazz series. Oh, <laughs> so, so although oh, so, if oh, you oh, notice, Stanley Crouch was the godfather of bias, but yeah. <laughs> uh, oh yeah, yeah. You know, God rest his soul. Uh, a great man. I wish I'd got a chance to interview him. I loved his Charlie Parker book, but yeah, he definitely made a lot of enemies, and it made one out of me with that jazz documentary. I mean, I, I respect both him and Wenton, but I, yeah, yeah, was it slanted? And if you notice, we'll get to it. This this cuts off in the '90s, and so they conveniently duck out on a lot of contentious subjects but yeah no i was very pleased with it on the whole i mean there's definitely some stories and we'll get to those later where i would like to have heard more about this guy or that guy and maybe less about this person and and definitely some of the people that were very generous with their time there's a whole crew of 90s era artists that then maybe a little bit extra attention because hey they put in the hours <laughs> yeah. and, and, and we're in front of the I can't really camera. think of anybody who's in the special who said anything I thought was obnoxious you know I, I mean everybody yeah. everybody kind of had their I mean I know talking talking to people about the special everybody kind of had their I wish so and so could have done this and that but I mean under the circumstances everybody did well you know I mean yeah. Martin Marty, Marty Stewart was kind of what for the country special what Wynton Marsalis was the jazz festival like yeah. the the performer who was also a historian, a collector, you know, and he told the story well. I thought. Yeah, I have to I have to agree with that. Now, I, all of them. Vince Gill was good. Kathy Matea, um, uh, Roseanne Cash was was good. Uh, Rihanna Giddens from uh, the Carolina Chocolate Drops was really good. Wenton Marcellus himself right. comes along and is good. You know, yeah. you get some of the big names: Dolly, Merle, Garth pops in there, and yeah, and Charlie Pride is a very welcome presence on this. Late Charlie Pride, so yeah, overall. And of course, uh, he wasn't he wasn't averse to like reusing clips from other specials too, because there was like a really maybe I'm jumping the gun and don't and mention this too early, but there was like a really revealing quote about about the Vietnam War from Jan Howard. You know, that kind of like shocked yep. me out of my seat. I mean, yeah, yeah, you probably know what I'm talking about, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, I do remember that, and, and we'll definitely get that when the episode comes. Yeah, and that's the virtue of having done these documentaries and interviewed so many people, because a lot of the people interviewed for this one have passed away, uh, you know, some of them quite a few years ago. So, you know, glad they caught those uh, sources while they could. And um, let's just jump right into it. They 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 start out with a with 
I think a pretty good starting point. There's a, there's a painting by Thomas Hart Benton, The Sources of Country Music, that I think she said, Kathy Mateo uh, said that was his last painting. And it's there at the Country Music Hall of Fame where Kathy Mateo was a docent and and gave tours and stuff. So she's got some perspective. And I was kind of fond of this because Thomas Hart Benton painted a painting about my hometown, an oil boom town. So uh, I feel kind of close to Thomas Hart Benton. But, you know, it's a painting right. that shows... Barn dances, railroads, riverboats, gospel choirs, fiddles, cowboys with guitars, uh, Af- African American playing a banjo, uh, and the slaves, and how this all came together, plus the lap dulcimer. So, you know, right from the get go, it's given a pretty, I think that's a pretty good iconic image to start with to explain country music. I like the fact that he kept everything in context. He didn't just think that everybody happened in a, in a vacuum, you know, there's yeah. a lot of outside influences that made, like, you know, country the way it was. You know, I mean, if something's ha- something's happening in the larger pop field, you know, he would have he would have had that reflect back the country and how it affects the country. You know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and that's why it's a perfect source for Let It Roll because that's kind of where we're at with we always talk about the technology, the cultural stuff, and this episode is called The Rub, and it reminds me I was talking to Ro- with Robert Gordon about one of his books on Memphis recently. And he was talking about that creative friction that happens when you have cultures collide and start creating yeah. culture together. And and that rub, that friction and that tension and, and that intrigue of different people who don't know each other's music, learning each other's music and, you know, frequently making fools of themselves to the other side, you know, like to these other groups that they don't know anything about or whatever. So, you know, and that's definitely, um, they bring that whole context in and, you know, with Ken Burns, all of his major series are fundamentally, and it's just fundamentally because he's telling the story of American history are fundamentally about race, whether it's civil war, jazz, baseball, you know, so country is definitely not going to be an exception and they hit it, you know, head on. And, um, and I thought it had pretty good, yeah, it, it's you've got to do it, and and. Well, that's what was interesting was I knew quite a few um, African American friends of mine who watched the special uh, from the get go, and they were expecting it to be nothing but you know white Appalachians from one end of the program to another, and they're like genuinely shocked how much airtime black performers got during the early episodes, of, during the early installments rather of the series. That's cool. I I I. I uh... Like that. What was their reaction? I mean, were many of them country fans going in, or were there a lot of people that were just watching it because it was a Ken Burns special and it was on PBS? I think I think a lot of them were watching it because you know it was on, or they were watching because you know they were uh, because people were talking about it, you know, or just because you know they were just curious. You know, they might like country here and there, but they weren't like you know um, out and out fans, you know, and they thought it'd be like a cool thing to see, and they really, really were you know, amazed at how much airtime, you know, the black performers like Gifford Bailey and whatnot received. And also, too, it's probably worth pointing out here something. You might have pointed this out. Somebody did, I know, but it's kind of true. It's like, you know, you know, a lot of those old-time Southern string band musicians, whether they were black or white, they pretty much played the music of the time that people liked. They weren't thinking, oh, we're going to start a country band or we're going to start a blues band. Because you had people like Mississippi John Hurt who played a lot of like country type stuff, you know, and you had yeah. a lot of like, you know, yeah. people like, you know, a lot of those old white um, mountain musicians, they were really blues influenced, you know, yeah. but when it Doc came Boggs. time to make records, you know, that's when they were like, you know, 
I mean, that these labels had their race series and their hillbilly series, as it was called back then, you know, and they weren't about to put Mississippi John Hurt in the hillbilly series, you know. Yeah. So yeah. they kind of had to tell them, to like, you know, well, not tell them, but rather, like, you know, force them into a category that they hadn't really considered. Yes, absolutely. Because most musicians back then were human jukeboxes. If you could play and sing, people are going to ask you to play and sing what they want to hear. And and right. people are also going to play what they like. I mean, you know, when, when uh, Lomax and <clears throat> the other documenters got to Muddy Waters, you know, he's doing Gene Autry songs and stuff. And they're like, well, that's great, Muddy, but let's steer you over here and, and sing some blues. Well, let's hear our first song. This is uh, Fiddlin' John Carson and that little old log cabin down the lane. Fiddling John Carson doing the little log cabin in the lane. And which that song's a perfect example. Like when I was a kid and I got my first exposure to this old time of country music was getting the Smithsonian, my mom getting the Smithsonian Guide to Classic Country Music when I was in seventh grade. And it was a big box with a bunch of cassettes and a booklet. And they talk a lot about old British ballads. They're not really explaining that most of these songs are actually old pop songs. And it's fascinating to me that country. Mm has, you know, like Little Old Log Cabin in the Lane, that's an old minstrel tune from minstrel shows, which were the dominant pop form in America from 1840, basically till 1910. Uh, you know, vaudeville yeah. starts coming along in 1890. You know, so that, and, and you know, it's just kind of like the way country radio is still kind of lagging behind. It's the last place you're going to hear guitars everywhere on, on new records on the radio, and, and they're starting right. to get in a little hip-hop. It's kind of like the the... Um, you know, the backwash, which I don't want to put, you know, I love my country, but it's, you know, it, it's the nostalgia. It's the looking backward part of American culture, whereas, you know, R&B. Well, kind of like they've always said, you know, it's like they say that R&B is about 10 years ahead of rock and roll and rock and roll is like 10 years ahead of country. Yep. Because in the 50s, yep. you had a lot, no, in the 70s, a lot of the country guys were in their 30s and early 40s, you know, and they and uh, they actually had a rockabilly past, yep. you know. And so they had a lot of like a lot of the country, a lot of the country guys like Buck Owens and uh, Waylon Jennings and the Compton Brothers and a few others. There were a surprising amount of remakes of '50s rock hits that were country hits in the early '70s. Yep. You know, Absolutely. so I mean that kind of you know that kind of you know about like you know the the ten years behind versus the ten years ahead. I mean, and country still seems to be that way because. I remember, like you know, if you if you if you allow me, I remember I was listening to uh, on a road trip. Uh, the driver had on the country station. This was like back in the summer of 2014, and we're driving through the South. And as God is my witness, it's like everything here is 2014, and just like all the hits on country radio sound like a jam band from 1998. <laughs> yes, it may, it, it, it may as well have been like you know the spin doctors with a pedal steel player. Yep, pretty much, pretty much. Now, you and, that as a joke. I mean, it really does sound like you know. I guess all the all the jam band fans of nineteen ninety are the country fans of today. It's entirely likely, and I expect you know um, some of those 
first white country rappers from the 2000s to resurface in the country scene in the next five, 10 years, you know, Bubba Sparks, et cetera. Um, you know, it's, it's just, it's just a fascinating dynamic the way uh, American music has worked. And like you said, the musicians were very open. I mean, and you go further back and, you know, little old like cabin in the lane was written to emulate the perception of African-American musical styles. And, and like, you know, they, they get into the circular thing of black people imitating white people, imitating black people, imitating white people in this sort of circular loop. And if you go back to the history of the cakewalk, you know, it, it, it's the black slaves who've been watching the dances in the plantation house mocking it. And then the white people inside the house watching the black people mocking them and not knowing they're being mm -hmm. mocked and then mocking the black people. You know, it's <laughs> this, this Ouroboros, you know, snake eating its tail uh, kind of dynamic. I think, I think with, these guys, with these guys doing the imitations, they accidentally created a category of their own. You know? Absolutely. I mean, the Rolling, in 1964, the Rolling Stones thought they were a blues band. You know, and by blue standards, they came up a little short, you know, but by rock and roll standards, they were like bad, dangerous. So that yes. kind of lets you know how, you know, it all kind of like travels in that weird circle there, you know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, with minstrelsy, you get a whole era once the slaves are freed. That's one of the first showbiz opportunities African-Americans get. So you get this whole, you know, Pygmy Markham Burt Williams, right. black people in blackface, which you know seems totally crazy. Now. I mean, the whole blackface thing seems totally crazy now, and and is very politically charged. So, you know, and I think that country comes in having been the most retrograde genre, just because it's the most nostalgic and backward looking. It's also been in the deep south, and like one of the younger guys that they have on the show says, you know, country music happened in the South because that's where slavery happened. You know, I mean, slavery was being profited yeah. from at Brown and, you know, Rhode Island and New York and all these other places, but the slaves were living in the South and that rub, that dynamic happens, you know, and, and you get the Scots-Irish coming down the mountainsides who aren't slavers, but live cheek by jowl with slaves and ex-slaves. And, you know, you get these culture clashes in this dynamic but but i love seeing dave macon and fiddle and john carson and these guys who are basically preserving minstrel styles from 20 30 years earlier and so yeah it's, dave, dave macon they say was stone cold racist but he knew how to clown you know uh when he when he put on the show you know it's like i mean i've um so I, I know i've seen i mean you probably remember those clips they show like the first couple of episodes of uh of uh, the Ken Burns documentary, it's like the man was like, I mean, let me put this way: for a man, I mean, he was he was sitting down the entire time, yet he had stage presence to kill. Oh yeah, and he's like stamping his feet, you know, and he's like, you know, play, toying with the banjo the same way rock guys do with guitars decades later, you know, and he's like getting into it, and yet he's not even standing up or even breaking a sweat, you know, he's just doing it, you know. And I mean, I'm I'm quite sure that he he had to pick him he had to pick that up from the black vaudeville, vaudeville oh, you know, absolutely. Or maybe people he had seen himself, like you know, later on we'll hear about Hank Williams growing up, uh, you know, the famous black musician that mentored him. So there's no telling where Uncle Dave Macon got it. And you know, they talk about uh, Emmett Miller, who was uh, a minstrel performer 
well into the 1920s and kind of the last hurrah of minstrelsy. And and he makes these records that weren't popular at the time, but go on to have this huge influence, not just on country music, but on Louis Prima and Leon Redbone and David Lee Roth and all these, you know, performers have been influenced uh, by Emmett Miller. Meanwhile, Jolson's the biggest pop singer in the country, and he's coming out of a vaudeville blackface tradition in a totally weird, I'm a Jewish guy going to put blackface on. And we're getting well afield here, but you know, this is, this is the dynamic. And I'm glad you mentioned that Dave Macon was a stone cold racist because we don't want to whitewash, if you'll forgive the term, who these people were and what the dynamic was. This is the 1920s, which is one of the most awful pogromrific eras in American history. I mean, the Klan is in the streets. The Klan almost took the Democratic Party nomination in 1924, an open avowed Klansman. You know, the governor right. of Indiana is supposedly taking orders from the Klan. I mean, it, it's stuff is heavy. While all this, while all this musical miscegenation was going down, it wasn't happening socially. No, you know, so definitely. That's kind, of, that's kind of something to remember. I mean, I listen to. I'm a big fan of a lot of uh, the old timey string band musicians, and when I buy these reissues of that kind of stuff. Uh, as the song says, that's the stuff you got to watch. You know, it's like you'll be listening and you'll be grooving. You know, it'll be like a you know, nice little banjo riff there, a nice little guitar riff there, the guy's singing. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, there's a racial slur in the lyrics. Oh, yeah. So, and you if know, you listen closely, yeah, yeah. it gets worse from there, uh, you know, oh, yeah. frequently. And, and uh, you know, it's it's and that's also gets gets into the Scots Irish nature. And I, they. They, I think they do a great job with the African-American in this because – and African-Americans have definitely been underserved, have been overly influential in country music and then dramatically underserved and boxed out from opportunities in country music. Like the, the last wave of string bands in the 1920s, if you're African-American, you didn't get to record that music. you know, And, and that was yeah, really yeah. the wellspring of the tradition. The, the old school fiddle player was almost always black. you know, And the banjo comes right. from Africa and – you know. But I don't know that they serve the Scots-Irish quite as well. They get into this discussion of how it was named hillbilly music at the time, which is pretty good. And they get into how that's one of those slurs that the hillbillies feel like it's okay if we say it, not so great if you say it. And um, that's about as close as they get to the Scots-Irish disaffected dynamic. And it's always been an outsider community in America and also – at its worst, can be the Cossacks of America. You know, like the the Scots Irish, two thirds of them fought for the Union, but as soon as the war's over, they all flipped to the ugly side yeah. and Reconstruction. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, uh, and that's my people. So I can talk. But let's let's hear let's hear a song. We've been talking about DeFord Bailey. This is African American harmonica player who was the most featured artist in the history of the Grand Ole Opry. Property. And here he's doing his famous fox chase. And that was DeFord Bailey, star of the Grand Ole Opry for decades, doing his fox chase. And they'll return to him and, and sort of the sadder part of his story in an episode or two 
but yeah, he was pretty unique in that he, when they put the Grand Ole Opry on the air in Nashville, and it was strictly a fluke sort of thing that that got on the air in Nashville. The, there's the yeah. old barn dance that Sears is putting on in Chicago. That's got people like Bradley Kincaid singing old folk ballads and, and becoming a pretty big star for the time. And right. there's an insurance company in Nashville that decides to go on the radio and happen to hire a program director who wants to run a country show. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the old Kevin. Judge Hay. Oh, uh, yeah. And and they, you know, featured DeFord Bailey as the featured harmonica player, but no other African-American performer even gets a look in on the Opry until Charlie Pride in the late 60s. So, and and they basically shit-canned DeFord in the 40s, very yeah. without, unceremoniously, and that'll come up in an episode or two. So, yeah, he, yeah, he was pretty bitter about that, but yeah, you're right, yeah. Yeah, and right, rightfully, rightfully bitter about it. And and they do get into another dynamic where the city fathers of Nashville do not approve of Nashville, starting with WSM Radio, long before there's a recording industry there, makes it a hub of country music because they've got the insurance company back in a powerful radio signal uh, that reaches all across the country, even into the Caribbean, and is mm -hmm. broadcasting this stuff. And, and um it quickly professionalizes. They're, they talk about it. It's still amateur hour where he's just letting folks come and play at the station for free. But within a few years, you've got people like Uncle Dave Macon, who are these stone professional performers who are dominated. And DeFord Bailey is right there. And it is interesting. They, they talk about DeFord and Dave touring together in a big Packard. But, of course, when they get to the town... Dave can stay in a hotel and eat in a restaurant, and DeFord can't. And and I can't remember who's talking, but they say, you know, but they were equal on stage. I really don't know. I wonder what DeFord would have to say about that. Uh, yeah, and also, too, I've heard stories like when that happened. I mean, this is in later decades, but generally when that happened, you know, I mean, the, the white performers, if they were traveling with black performers, they couldn't, like, stay or eat in the same place. You know, usually they try to fix so that, you know, the white performer would stay at the black at the black place with the other guy, or they would like at least bring food, you know, to the uh, to the person who can't go inside. I wonder if they if, if they make and ever did that, or just take advantage of his privilege. I mean, I can just sit here and suppose for days. That's the way. Yeah, it yeah, and it's un it's unfair to Dave to do that without knowing one way or the other. But I wouldn't be too bending over backwards to give him a benefit of doubt either. But nonetheless, it was progressive before his time to be performing on stage with the black man. And, and it gives us this legacy and, you know, the instruments, the, the banjo came from Africa, like, like we said, and that's the dominant stringed instrument in the 19th century, except for the fiddle, which the fiddle is so dominant in the 19th century and was basically a Celtic British instrument. You know, it's, it's scattered all over Europe, but, but, when it comes to country, it's coming down through the Appalachians and, and all through the coast, too. Everybody's playing fiddles at the dances, and that's very much an African-American tradition, the fiddle and banjo band. Yeah. And and it's still vibrant in the 1920s. There's lots of documentation of this band was active, this band was active, this band was active and recorded a blues song, but we never got to hear what they had to say uh, as country performers. So it's a big loss. But we did document these white string bands, which is a big gain, which, you know, this is essentially the moment this 
story starts because this is when recorded music happens. So we have records of Fiddle and John Carson, who starts out as yeah. a radio performer for a couple of years before Ralph Pierre comes along. And and I think it's just classic that Ralph Pierre is the same guy who kicked off the black blues craze with Crazy Blues and Mamie Smith. He's the guy who discovered Louis Armstrong. This was just another underserved ethnic market to him at a time when radio's capital cannibalizing, you know, the the shellac market, the record market. And he stumbles across Fiddle and John Carson, doesn't think he's going to sell. They don't quite get into the full story of how he basically printed up acetates that immediately were played on the radio and there was instant demand. And, you know, he printed a batch up to let somebody sell and those sold. And so, you know, he's kind of dragged kicking and screaming into the country business. But by 1927, when he goes to Bristol for the famous Big Bang of Country, he knows what he's doing. And he goes to the oh, hometown yeah. of Ernest Stoneman and discovers uh, Jimmy Rogers and Sarah Carter and the Carter family. But let's let's take a quick break here from our sponsors. And we come back, we'll talk about the Big Bang of country music. And so, like I was saying, they, they played the background of what is country music, defined it as working class music, you know, this mix of labor songs, parlor songs, fiddle dance tunes, Sunday hymns, both black and white, uh, smoky saloon music, barrio music, wide open Western range cowboy songs. And that's just beginning to be documented in a haphazard way. Eck Robertson cuts the first fiddle tune in 1922, doesn't really sell. Ralph Peer records Fiddle and John Carson in 23, I want to say, maybe 25. That does sell. OK Records is in, in the business. Ralph Peer then breaks away, goes switches to Victor Records, and goes to Bristol, Tennessee, looking for talent. And you know, the guy, this is the guy who discovered Louis Armstrong a little later after Mamie Smith. And he says, you know, lightning was in a bottle, and boom, boom, not once but twice, the Carter family and Jimmy Rogers. So, and that's pretty good talent, Scott. It is. It is. I mean, it sounds like he almost like you know bumped into bumped into the whole thing by accident like he didn't know what he was like you know really doing he figured that well let's put it out for the underserved, underserved market as you say and only sell with two or three copies but it's it's out there and if they want it you know and it turns out that you know i mean he's like struck gold mine and it's become bigger than anybody ever thought you know yeah and quickly you know jimmy rogers second session produces the first blue yodel which is going to sell you know, Jimmy Rogers is a big time record seller, like, you know, in the millions, maybe one or two million selling discs, but consistently in the hundreds of thousands. And the Carter family are big as well, but they're selling more like 700,000 copies of half a dozen records over a four year period rather than one single million seller. So Rogers is definitely the burning this candle, blazing light guy, burning this candle at both ends. And they, I think they do a good job with that dichotomy. If you're only going to talk about two performers from this era in any depth, it's hard to go wrong with Jimmy Rogers and the Carter family and the whole Bristol's explosion. You got Ralph Peer bringing his recording equipment. Kind of covers all the bases of what's going on in the industry in this era. Yeah, kind of like the Beatles and the Stones this uh, period, I guess. The Carters and the uh, and Jimmy Rogers. Yeah, yeah. Although I don't know what John Lennon would think about being the Carter family of the equation, but <laughs> <laughs> Why did, I, I mean, I didn't mean that. I didn't mean that to run in order. I'm just saying. Yeah. Well, well that's uh, how I, it would I, break out. It, it's it's accurate, but you know. Um, 
And and I don't know which is which, but that's like (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But like the the my first expression to both Rogers and Carter was from that Smithsonian box set. How did you get into the old Tommy stuff? Oh God, I don't even I don't know, I guess I got the country music period, like in uh nineteen ninety. And how I got to that was through Rockabilly. You know, and I don't remember the first old-timey record I bought, but I do remember that, you know, it just seemed like the next logical step, you know, because country and bluegrass, I considered, like, all together, as I was buying a lot of bluegrass records as well, how I really got into old-timey. I mean, I always liked it from the time I started listening to country, but how I really started getting to old-timey music was uh, in the early 2000s, you know, there was like, maybe you've seen this, but RCA had this series called The Secret History of Rock and Roll, something like that. It was also titled When the Sun Goes Down. And it was basically like a compilation of all the of all the pre-war performers from the period that we're discussing, you know, um, the the old timey people and the country blues guys. And quite a few quite a few of those volumes had the old timey folks and the blues folks, you know, plus the barrio folks as you mentioned, like on the same volume. And you could kind of tell how all of that kind of interweaved, you know, uh uh uh, in, in between each other, and the early ni- in the early 2000s, I was listening to, listening to a lot of that. One thing led to another, and although this had nothing to do with it, I do remember that movie Old Old Brother Where Art Thou, kind of that was big then, and yeah. it was kind of like an old timey old timey slash bluegrass revival around that same time, you know. And so, which meant that you know the labels were like only too happy to have this movie be their excuse to reissue all this stuff. You know, and so here I'm absorbing it like a sponge. And uh, so, you know, Doc Boggs, Roscoe Holcomb, and uh, who else? Uh, I don't remember now. Of course, the Carter family. But, you know, people around, people along those lines. Hobart Smith, you know. And so yeah. I kind of like, you know, followed that thread, you know. And, of course, I could see, like, you know, where, I mean, just like, you know, even though, as we discussed earlier, the labels were already segregating the blacks through the blues and the whites through the country, you could hear how they could like, how the influence kind of switched off. I mean, the Carters didn't have much of a blues influence, I think. I don't think. But well, the slide uh, guitar, it was definitely though, there. Is, is, there's a lot of Maybell playing slide guitar, and I'm pretty sure, um, you know, she was learning that from a blues man. I want to say Leslie Riddle. Yeah, Leslie Riddle is the guy that traveled with AP. Thank you for my brain farting on his name. But he would travel with AP Carter, and they would go song collecting. And he could remember the melodies, and AP would write down the lyrics. And and supposedly Leslie taught uh, Maybell some slide, and you can hear her playing slide on on quite a few tracks. So that's the first time I'd noticed that. But going back and listening this week to prep, there's a good half dozen slide songs on the first. 20 Carter family uh, tracks. So even the Carters um, are quite bluesy. And one of the things I love about the Carters is the first thing you learn is, you know, written by AP Carter, song after song after song. Then it turns out, oh, he's going around the neighborhood and getting these old songs. And you think he's getting like Barbara Allen type Irish ballads that are hundred years old. But, you know, like when the Rounder CD reissues came out in the nineties and they tracked down every song, they're almost all, show tune songs from the 1880s 1890s it's once again country being this 
and backwater is a cruel term. It's more like the the sieve, you know, catching the good stuff at the end, last chance. You know, here's here's your last chance to hear these tunes, and and kind of preserving things. And and yeah. you know, AP Crew. They're the ones with recording contract, and the, the, the others weren't. Yeah. Know? So no one was the last chance. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> I mean, that, that's kind of a crude way to put it, but I mean, that's kind of the way it looks if you think about it. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt about that. And and they talk about Ralph Pierce's business deal with Victor Records. When he left OK, he made Victor this offer where I'll work for a dollar a year and I'm going to gobble up all the publishing, which is the most lucrative thing. And they talk about when they talk about the minstrel influence on country, they talk about Stephen Foster and his death as a pauper at age 38 is kind of the foundational trauma of the American music business. And we have bent over backwards and written every law to protect the songwriter. So publishing is where the money is. And basically, as soon as they had publishing companies set up, people had figured out how to get between the songwriter and his publishing money. So Ralph Pearson, <laughs> a distinguished company, uh, pulling that stuff, but was relatively generous for his time. He did pay Jimmy Rogers and the Carter family royalties, which is more than, you know, Charlie Patton could say about his uh, record company, you know. Ah, uh, yes. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, so it's it's all relative in the music business. Um, but yeah, the, the that Smithsonian set was where I got into the Carters and, and Jimmy Rogers. And I've always been more of a Carter family guy than Jimmy Rogers, but I definitely acknowledge and recognize. And also... When you hear Jimmy Rogers and you hear hear him with Louis Armstrong just hanging, I mean, you know, they talk about Ralph Peer respected both of these guys as personalities and as talents and just wanted to put them together and see what would happen. But he also booked him with Hawaiian bands, which is where the steel guitar comes yeah. into country. Um, and Jimmy, you know, they, they, they explain that he probably learned blues music at the railroad yards. Um, but he was also somebody who had done minstrelsy and done blackface performing, so he was familiar with that tradition. And, and let's also, go he hoboed with some of those guys too. I mean, I, yep. I, I once read an interview with uh, Sleepy John Estes and uh, what was his partner name? Hammy Nixon. I think yep. they bumped into Jimmy uh, Jimmy Rogers while they were hoboing, and they was like, you know, hanging around on the freight trains, you know, splitting a can of beans like they, were, you know, like, <laughs> like they were like long lost buddies, you know. Yeah, and yep. also as far as Jimmy Rogers, Jimmy Rogers go, if I may, I mean, there's something I forgot to tell you about uh, him. Uh, my father was a country fan, and that would have been where I first heard Jimmy Rogers. And I got to be honest with you, he when I started, when I finally acquired the taste for country, it was a while before I could acquire the taste for Jimmy Rogers because, like, I liked him when he was doing the bluesier stuff like Teeth of Texas. But if you notice, like, 50% of his uh, his repertoire is like really uh, sentimental ballads. You know, yep. and that's Daddy stuff and I had a hard time hanging with. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean it kind of grew on me over time, you know, but like I said, it's like, I mean, if there were compilations focused, you know, solely on his blues record, blues recordings, I would have been all over that bad boy, you know. But as it was, I mean, it's like, I still, I mean, even though I was a confirmed country fan, you know, in the 90s, it's like Jimmy Rogers and uh, Bob Wills, those are two that I kind of, I kind of had to like, you know, I don't know, um, I had to work my way up to those guys. I didn't get it right away, but when I did, I loved it. You know? Yeah, yeah, that's one of my favorite musical experiences. I had that experience with Rod Stewart, um, and and with the mother from Oklahoma, Bob Wills was very much native waters for me. But but Jimmy was another one. Yeah, I did have to work at Jimmy. And let's hear a little bit Jimmy Rogers. This is Jimmy Rogers backed up by Louis Armstrong and Louis's wife on piano, and this is a Blue Yodel Number Nine. Thank you. 
And that was Jimmy Rogers back by Louis Armstrong doing Blue Yodel number nine down on the corner. So, yeah, I mean, this is heavy duty American music right here. This is Jimmy Rogers at the peak of his powers with Louis Armstrong, who's at the peak of his powers, if not at the peak of his celebrity, which is you know, just going to mount over the ensuing decades. And they're going toe to toe with Bing Crosby. That's something they don't bring up is like the pop music context at this time. This is the day of the crooner. Rudy Valley and Bing Crosby and uh, Russ Colombo are battling it out to be the biggest star in the country with this new style of singing, crooning into the microphone rather than shouting to the rafters the way Al Jolson and old and Dave yeah. Macon had done. You know, they're crooning into the mic, and I, I'm very curious as to how that interrelated because you listen to Jimmy Rogers with Louis Armstrong, and then you go here Bing Crosby with Big Spiderbeck and the Paul Whiteman, and it's it's pretty competitive i mean they're, they're both very hip acts doing jazz blues bluesy stuff at the same time but being you know is the big pop star and, and jimmy for all his sales he's only touring the south uh he he does the one tour with will rogers the great vaudevillian and broadway star from oklahoma but that's the southern tour so i'm curious as to how he was seen in the greater pop market and and what the jazz age thought of jimmy rogers because the 20s is kind of the blues age as much as it's the jazz age you see a lot of that in southern music at time at, at time you'll see like say a jug band like we see a jug band in 2021 you know and we'll think oh they're a jug band i'm sure in their mind they wanted to be, you know, uh, the Penny Goodman Orchestra, but they couldn't afford the horns. Yeah. So the best they could do was yeah. like blow into these jugs, you know, and kind of like I said earlier about the Rolling Stones, like while they were trying to emulate one, they wound up accidentally creating another. And yep. you see a lot of that, and that circles back to what you're saying about Jimmy Rogers, you know, thinking he's being Crosby. And even though he wasn't, I mean, you see a guy, you know, where you, we've all seen pictures of him, right? He's got like, you know, the railroad cap and the dirty denims and the guitar, he's got his thumbs poked out and you're not expecting that kind of guy to be the man who'd give Russ Colombo competition. He was <laughs> aiming for it. Yep. You know? Yep. That he, he was. The back it... was mine, you know. Yep. I mean, people didn't live in a vacuum, you know. Uh uh-uh. uh. And and you look at him, you know, there's the Carter family did a session with him and there's those famous pictures of Jimmy Rogers and they show him in the documentary with his straw butter you know, looking just sharp as a tack next to the very yeah. dour, countrified Carter family, although they're wearing expensive clothes. They've, they're, they've come into their record prosperity, and they don't look foolish or like yokels. They're not playing it up, but he looks like the a Carter family like. always looked like they were in mourning. Yes. <laughs> I don't know if that was intentional or not, but it's like I've never seen a photo of them where they looked like they were having a ball. I mean, no. I mean, no. they, they really – I mean, and they sounded that way too, and it worked. You know, image-wise, you know. Yeah, it absolutely did, and and as they they lay some foreshadowing in this one with the, with the song selections, and they and they're going to tell more of the Carter family story next time. But there's definitely a sadness at the heart of the Carter family. That's that marriage between A.P. Carter and his wife Sarah. And you know, A.P. Carter is one of these weird figures in musical history. He wasn't an exceptional singer. He did sing some leads, and he sang some really cool harmony parts here and there. 
but he, but frequently there's Carter family records with no AP and he's not missed because Sarah and Maybell are so powerful. He, yeah, I don't mean I don't mean this in a mean kind of way, but it's easy to forget that he was a member of the band. I mean, absolutely. group rather because the, the the two female members are so dominant, you know that if he weren't in the picture, you would not figure that he was involved at all. Yeah, I mean he was good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's the, but he's the motivating force. He's the catalyst. He's the one who put them together. He's the one who married Sarah because of her singing voice. You know, he came over wow. the hillside and, and, and I, one thing I do love about this series and for whatever reason, I have this familial feeling about the Carter family. I'm proud when I hear about him being famous and people talking about him in the 21st century. Although even though my family was, you know, dirt farmers in Oklahoma, they were the kind of people who were too good for country music, you know. My mom was always <laughs> always listening to Benny Goodman and 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 the swing, and you know they didn't feel they felt it was low class to to listen to country. But my older brothers were into the whole seventies Waylon and Willie stuff, and and my, it was my older huh? brother that got us that set. And my mom had softened on country when she got older, and you know we drive in her car and listen to Hank and Johnny Cash and these the Carter family songs, and and I don't know why, but I I do take immense pride in the Carter family. They're like American royalty and with the whole Johnny Cash connection. And I thought exactly, the series yeah. did a really good job of getting the grandeur of Sarah Carter across. It's almost like, you know, if you, it's almost like a thread woven through the whole series. It's like, you know, uh, no matter how, how things change through the decades, it always circles back to, so what are the Carters doing? And now the cash in the fa- cash in the family, what's he doing? You know, it's like everything's kind of like, I mean, while they're telling the story, you know, they always double back to what some members of the Carter slash cash clan are doing, you know? Yep. So in yep. a weird kind of way, it's almost like this sort of, I don't know what the big word is I'm trying to shoot for right now, but it, it's kind of like they're like a, huh? Thread, I think is a good one. That they're, they're the central narrative thread that connects all this yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, there there are other threads in the loom or the weave or whatever. Um, and the way they get Merle Haggard to talk about Jimmy Rogers and the way Merle Haggard then references Bob Wills and Red Foley at, and Hank Williams as Jimmy Rogers fans. And so they, they capitalize on the opportunity with these country music musicians as sources to, to do that, to build these connections with the Carter family and the Cash Dynasty. And there's two generations, three generations of Carter family performers through this, you know, and Roseanne Cash is having like, you know, important hits in the eighties, uh, which I had forgotten about until the series started, but, but, you know, I, but we'll, we'll talk about that when we get to that episode, but yeah. So, Anyway, I'm pretty happy with this one. There's not, although actually, there's one artist I wish they had talked about more, and I think they come back to him in the second episode. I hope I'm, I'm right on that. But Riley Puckett is one guy. They mentioned Charlie Poole, but they didn't mention Good Tanner. They didn't mention the Skill Lickers. And they didn't mention Riley Puckett, and so um, that hurts a little bit because because Riley Puckett is one of my favorites from that era, and and is kind of the most gifted and also Vernon Dalhart they don't talk about and he was competing with the crooners and he was selling pop units you know he's kind of the Eddie Arnold of his era with the the prisoner song but let's hear um our last song this is the Carter family single girl married girl which is definitely plot foreshadowing that we'll talk about next time this is the Carter family
and that's Sarah Carter, the Carter family doing single girl, Mary girl. And yeah. So what were your missed opportunities in this episode? Or was there any artists you would like to have seen him talk about a little bit more from the twenties? Honestly, um, they pretty much covered everybody who I wanted to, who I wanted to see. I mean, it's like some got covered less than the less than others, you know. And it's pretty much the same thing all the way throughout the whole the whole uh, run of the series. I mean, there might have been one or two who got covered less than I would have wanted to see them, but they were there, you know. I mean, because uh, uh, Ken Burns did manage to even 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 these people didn't take up as much space as they should have. You know, you can't really say that Charlie Poole was like, you know, out of, out of the cold altogether. No. If I remember correctly, he was in it. They just didn't dwell on it. I think yeah. kind of because it's almost like the, the way they were setting things up. I mean, I try not to look, I try, try not to compare things, you know, to the rock and roll world, but you can probably relate this. It would kind of be the way they, on the one hand, Jimmy Carter, Jimmy, no, Jimmy Rogers and the Carter family deserve the coverage they got, you know, but for them it's kind of like, you know, do like a sort of like, you know, to have like you no know, little cameos by like you know um, Charlie Poole and the rest. That would be like if you're doing a documentary on the British invasion and you just focus on the Beatles, the Rolling Stones. You can't just pass over the Yardbirds. And the, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. I mean, because I mean, in, in, in rock and roll terms, those artists would get as much exposure as like you know um, uh, the Beatles and the Stones. But that's kind of what the I mean, Jimmy and the Carters they cast such a large shadow that everybody else was kind of like, you know, the guys came behind, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And the, the British Invasion is kind of my home base musically, the area I have obsessed about the most and nerded out to the most. And one realization I had, because when, when you get into the music and you're hearing the records, the kinks can go toe-to-toe with the Beatles sometimes. Riley Puckett can hang with Jimmy Rogers record for record for quite a ways. And when you get that deep into the music, you can kind of lose your perspective on the cultural impact and be like, why isn't this artist whose music, whose body of work maybe is just as accomplished or close to as accomplished as the, as the Carter family. Although that's a big mountain to climb, honestly, but, but, you know, because they didn't get the opportunity to record that much. So many people got cut off as soon as the depression started. And they talk about that, the way record sales just went from tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars a year in 1929 to basically tens of millions and just a couple years later you know in the carter you kind of have to wonder i mean evidently that stuff sold because one thing i've noticed you know when i was getting to like old-timey country rca and columbia they kept that stuff in print some kind oh, yeah. of way you know yep. so i mean so i mean, I, mean, it, it, so, I, mean I have a seven inch reissue of a gear tanner song from like the 70s you know so if you wanted to get tanner record in the 70s you know it was available you know, yep. but still in all, when you look, when you look back on this, kind of like, you know, because it's like you mentioned the kinks, okay? It's like the kinks, you know, in, you know, as far as the aficionados and the collectors and the critics and the historians, the kinks like right in the upper tier with the Beatles and the Stones. But in the case of like, you know, just the people who are like just buying records and getting all their lives, kind of like doing their due, it's like, yeah, they bought the kinks records, but you don't, because you know, you, 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 if the Beatles, the Stones come to town, you're going to scream, you know, and totally yeah. lose it. You know, whereas if the Kinks come to town, you're going to be like, well, I'm going to do that. Might as well see the Kinks, you know? <laughs> yep, yep. That would kind of be like the viewpoint of somebody who was a, who was a teenager in 1965. You yeah. know, as yeah. opposed to like, you know, latter-day, you know, collective folk like us, 
you know. Yes, 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 and 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 yeah, and, and the I, Carters. And, and, maybe, and, and maybe that's the way a gear Tanner might have looked, you know, in relation to uh, a Jimmy Rogers, maybe. I don't yeah, know. yeah. I mean, I, uh, yeah, kind of came along a little earlier, but was still making records through that whole twenty nine, twenty seven to thirty period, and yeah, 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 and. And they're in print, but they didn't stay in print. That's the weird thing about the Rogers and the Carter family. They've never gone out of print. As Ever since they've recorded, some of their records have been on the market. And part of that's just luck because of who bought Victor. But, you know, Victor is incorporated into RCA, RCA, I can't remember which Titan they're into. But, you know, some record companies are perfectly successful in their heyday and then are mismanaged or sold to somebody random. I mean, like Aaliyah records are out of print now, which when I discovered that the other week, I was flabbergasted. You know, this is stuff that was multi-platinum 20 years ago, and now it's unavailable. So hmm. part of it is the luck of the, you know, the businesses they were in. You know, they they didn't know Victor was going to be a mainstream record company all the way through for the next century, but that's how it played out. And, you know, they've always been available. And, you know, Jimmy toured, hard but the carter family just played a few little churchy gigs and and it's one of my favorite things about the carter family is talk about unspoiled by celebrity i mean they were the last they were sort of the first superstars like when they were on the border radio a few years later and they'll talk about that in the next episode i mean they're reaching millions of people every week and yet it doesn't seem to have really impacted and they never became showbiz people whereas jimmy rogers yeah was show his people even before he was famous like and, well, that's and the funny part of fact i mean the second generation of carters with june and them they were more showbiz than the actual family themselves oh yeah you know because I mean, june carter was a clown you know yep. and you put her i mean you, you, i mean it's like i mean all you gotta do is put a spotlight on it, even if it's just a refrigerated door i mean she just like go off and do you can just go off you know i can't somehow or another i can't see mother maybell doing the same thing no, <laughs> I mean, you know, you know, and also too. I mean, it's funny how we met. Um, a lot of listen to a lot of old timey string band stuff. I know there's a lot of people saying about, you know, being the bully of the town and getting thrown out of bars. You know, like in a really, really, you know, rowdy, ratchet kind of stuff. You know. Yep. There's none of that in the Carter's in the Carter's music. Nope. It's like I can see, like you know, Jimmy. Jimmy Rogers like playing for like those same bullies of town, you know, who just want to like you know, who's who's want to like you know, uh, you know, act a clown on Friday or Saturday night, you know. Yes. But the Carters to me, they come off like the secular wing of the people who uh, live for Sunday morning church. Yeah. You know, I yep. hope that makes sense. But yeah, yeah. Yeah, it absolutely does, and that's one thing they talk about earlier is that whole dichotomy that is central to country music. It's also central to R and B is that tension between Saturday night and, and Sunday morning. And Wynton Marcellus has a good, you know, way of summing up that, you know, people like to get busy with each other and they, they mix and mingle on Saturday nights and then they purify and sanctify on Sunday morning so they can get ready to do it again Saturday night. So that whole dichotomy is present in country from the beginning. And the Carters and Jimmy Rogers just perfectly embody that. I love the story they tell about Rogers playing for a preacher convention and he tells him, I'm sorry, fellas, I don't know any religious songs. So he's singing, you know, um, Frankie and Johnny, you know, a murder ballad about a, a pimp and a, and, a, and a whore. And it's it's and gets a standing ovation. You know, it's it's uh, it's classic. And they talk about the way when Jimmy Rogers gets big, he gets these letters from people who are taking all of his songs literally as his personal life story. And 
a very different media environment. I mean, talk about getting people fresh off the cabbage truck. This is the first time people have been exposed to mass media ever. And radio suddenly becomes present in so many American homes in all across the South. Um, black folks didn't have as many radios. White folks had a lot of radios. But even black folks could go down to the shop. The, you know, the country store or whatever and listen to the radio or had a neighbor who listened to the radio. You hear Muddy Waters talking about that and and people had records. And, and, and I mean, these people are fresh. They are falling for everything. And, you know, they talk about the doctor uh, who's selling goat gland surgery over the radio. Mm-hmm. And, I mean. Yeah. <laughs> and in the meantime, here's Jimmy Rogers, who was more or less the Elvis of RCA before Elvis. You know? Yeah. Yep. I mean, he, even even after he died, you know, and long playing albums came in, it's like it's like RCA marketed him heavily. I mean, they even I forget which song it was, I forget which band it was, but at least once they overdubbed like a modern day band on on, 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 on one of the songs to to make it sound more contemporaneous with the late fifties, early sixties. Yeah, I mean, I... the fact that they try that, you know, I mean, as crass that is, I mean, that kind of lets us know that, you know, I mean, there was an audience. I mean. The, a, a, lot, a, lot, a lot of Jimmy Rogers' audience was still alive by the late 50s and early 60s. And, uh, you know, why not, like, you know, do some kind of uh, put out some new product, even if it is a bastardization. Exactly. Know? And I, 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 when you tell that story, I just envision somebody who's been at the company for a long time and his go-to move is, let's sell some Jimmy Rogers records. <laughs> He's just trying <laughs> it again, you know. And we, because, see how, we, see how they, we see how they pimp Jim Reeves. I mean, come on. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, or you know the way George Jones records his whole discography, pull the whole Taylor Swift every time he changed record labels. You know, uh, it's <laughs> it's funny. Just the stories never change. It seems like there's like six stories in the record industry, and and they just cycle in and out. And you know the Carter family and Jimmy Rogers are definitely two of them. And you know, and I liked I I, I saw the series get knocked a little bit for being more about people and less about music. But I didn't really think that was fair. And I thought they did a good job of explaining, you know, they talk about Jimmy and his different sidemen that he worked with. They talk about Maybell's guitar style. They talk about Sarah's incredible singing voice and the way they harmonize together. I think it was, I think it was pretty even 50-50 either way myself because, uh, I mean, be honest with you, I mean, for a lot of us, a lot of those people are just names on a record label. Now, I'm not saying they should air their dirty laundry all the time, but at least let us know, you know, fill in the fill in the gaps, fill in the stories about, you know, how they came to do what they came to do, you know? Yep. And also yep. you said there's like a time when the media was totally different, mass media was totally different then than now. You know, it's like obviously people are not gonna be like, Oh, I wonder if Jimmy Rogers come to town. I think I'll go on my uh, I think I'll go on my ye old computer and look at look up his website. It wasn't like that. <laughs> no. They found out some kind of way and you know, yeah. Yeah, and they talk about that. He would go into town, play for free in the town square, and and advertise his show for later in the evening. And and you know things get picked up on the grapevine. It's it's fascinating the way uh, and these people on major labels too. You see somebody doing that now. I mean, ah, uh, no, you know. I, yeah. I mean, there were some bands in Austin that started out that way as sort of you know you know, skiffling on the drag for, for change. And then I got signed by major labels and chewed up by major labels, never really made that much oh, of an yeah. impact, but, but yeah, it's, it, it would be a very unusual uh, marketing tactic now. So any final thoughts on the first episode of Kim Burns country music? I thought it was pretty well done. Uh, Cause I got to admit, I did go back to my Facebook 
a Facebook page uh, on the because the, the whole month that was going on, I had like these running commentaries on my uh, Facebook page about that night special, and I uh, went back to uh, see to see my thoughts. And it's pretty much, I mean, the way I feel in retrospect is kind of the way I felt then. You know, it's like considering that a lot of people were really wary of Ken Burns. He told a great story in the time it took him to tell him. And he might have missed some people, but everybody's got that person they're going to miss. You know, even you got like how many hours was it? Two hours, maybe, you know, and no commercials. There's always going to be that somebody who somehow or another, you know, got left out. But uh, I thought it was like, I thought it was like very well done. You know, and, you know, and kind of like, like I was telling some people, you know, it's like you don't expect every last one hit wonder, you know, or street corner performer who got chewed up by the major label to be on this, you know. Uh, but yeah. they did a job of including, like, you know, the majority of who was there, you know. And uh, that's kind of like my, my thought about it. I mean, look, look, looking back and at the time, I felt it was very well done. I have to agree. And James Porter, it's been a hoot talking music with you, and I look forward to bringing you back and talking about episode two. You got it. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Country Roll will be back next week when James and Nate discuss episode two, Hard Times, covering country music during the Depression and World War II, and artists like Roy Acuff and Bob Wills, who dominated the era. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.